Blog Talk Radio. It's Film Festival Radio, the show where superstars and future stars happily coexist together. And now, here's your host, Janice Malone. Meanwhile, Jordan said the recent GOP wins in Virginia point to how people are frustrated with growing government control. Police officers said at least eight people were killed and many others injured in a crush when fans surged toward the stage at the World Music Festival in Houston Friday while rapper Travis Scott was performing. This is a tragic night, Houston Fire Chief Samuel Pena told a news conference outside NRG Park, the event venue. This is USA Radio News. Zinworld Premium CBD offers full and broad-spectrum CBD oil, extracts, and capsules, which are designed to help you feel your best. Their products are sourced from the best organic hemp and natural ingredients on the market and are tested for quality, purity, and potency. They have a full range of items from health and wellness to beauty to pets. Call 725-205-9223. Visit online at Zinworld.com or stop by their location at 9895 South Maryland Parkway and Silverado Ridge Parkway. Mention KSHP for 10% off in-store or use code KSHP online for 15% off. Times have changed, but the joy of date night remains. Sharing a meal with someone special is more meaningful now than ever before. Let Finger Licking Foodie Tours host the ultimate date night with an exclusive private self-guided foodie tour. Visit three of Aria's hottest restaurants, Catch Carbone and John George Steakhouse, all in one night with immediate seating, 10 signature dishes, and an optional helicopter ride over the strip afterwards. This memorable experience is ideal for a couple of out-of-town guests and celebrations. Schedule your date night at FingerLickingFoodieTours.com. Have you heard the big news? Vent Boutique Las Vegas has a new name. Now you can call this amazing salon Sparkle Beauty Bar. Sparkle Beauty Bar is a full-service salon specializing in blowouts, makeup, cut, color, and now mobile services. Same great locations in downtown Summerlin and Henderson off of Green Valley Parkway and Horizon Ridge. Check out all they have to offer at sparklebeautybars.com. That's sparklebeautybars.com. Let your best hair day be every day. Is your dog suffering from a sensitive stomach? Hi, it's Kelly the Cookie Lady from Mooch's Munchies. Our dogs had super sensitive tummies, and I needed to find a low-fat treat that wouldn't give them gas or other issues. Most of the treats on the market were loaded with fillers, chemicals, and chicken fat. Many of them weren't even food. Well, I knew I could do better, so I developed Mooch's Munchies, and I'm happy to be able to share them with you. Stop by our store or our website, moochesmunchies.com, and find out why we say that Mooch's Munchies are totally possum. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. No, I'm not. You are cheap. Well, maybe I am. If you're buying a diamond ring for your wife, it's not cool to be cheap. If you're buying airline tickets, oh, it's very cool to be cheap and called Trip Amigo, where you can fly anywhere in the world and save up to 75% on over 500 airlines and 300,000 hotels. Plus, rental cars and vacation packages. Visit family, friends, or go on a once-in-a-lifetime vacation. Go ahead. Be cheap. We have special fares we're not allowed to publish. When you book your airline reservations with Trip Amigo, you'll spend your travel money when you get there, not by getting there. Go 
Call Trip Amigo now and mention the travel code Amigo and save even more. Call Trip Amigo now. 800-772-4165. 800-772-4165. That's 800-772-4165. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the following program are those of the program's participants and do not necessarily represent those of station staff, management, and advertisers. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show here with me, Janice Malone, on Film Festival Radio Show. And yes, we are in the month of November. And don't forget, tomorrow, yeah, I know, midnight, we got to roll our clocks back one hour. And I must admit, this is not a good time of year. Every year, the whole you know, roll back, spring forward. I I don't like the roll back because it's dark early. It's it's just ugh. I I'd rather eat licorice candy or something. It's just bad. I I don't like it. That's just me. I just don't like it. But we got to do it. We have to do it. So don't forget tonight. Roll the clocks back at midnight, and hey, we'll just take it from there. And then afterwards, make sure you drive safely because it will be dark early. Yeah, you know. Well, you know what? Let's just on to bigger, better, more exciting things here. And that includes our show. We have two, three guests for this show. We have two authors and we have a film festival uh, director uh, joining us. So uh, let's start with our first guest here. Um, If you are a fan or a lover of National Geographic magazine, National Geographic, uh, Nat Geo, the network, just anything with and about National Geographic. I grew up on Nat Geo, as they now call it, on the magazine, So, like so many millions of us did around the world. And so now uh, they have just so many books that they've released over the many decades here. And so they have a brand new one that just uh, came out just a few days ago, actually, is titled The 21st Century Photographs from the Image Collection. And this is a very, very beautiful book. It is, it's just stunning. It's huge. Let me tell you how many pages. Hold on. This book is real heavy. I know this book must weigh at least five pounds or more. It has, it is so beautiful. Wait a minute. Let me see how many pages this is in here. Okay, it has a total of 312 pages and of photographs, photographs, over 250 plus photographs. And these are photographs from photographers from around the world. And it chronicles and showcases the first 21 years of the 21st century. Again, it's just a spectacular showcase of Stunning moments that have happened in this era from around the world, such as um, these really just it's kind of bizarre but beautiful crystal caves that are underground in various parts of the world. Um, the first glimpse of Christ's tomb in more than 500 years. That's another picture. Thriving, uh, and I keep hitting my microphone. My nails are extra long right now, but that's what that is. But they're they're thriving photographs of what's going on underneath Antarctica, other than cold weather. Just uh, 
riots, protests, uh, forestry, oceans, um, life in oceans, just, again, different scenes, imagery that have taken place, significant uh, events throughout so far the 21st century. And as I said, this is a very large book. We're in holiday season. This would make an excellent gift for someone that you know who loves uh, this type of uh, photography. Maybe they're just a big fan like I am of National Geographic. And it's one of those types of books that you want to keep around. It's a coffee table style book. Uh, being in media, I get so many free books. Sometimes I have to just donate them, you know, maybe to the library or to friends that I know. But there are some that are keepers. This one is a keeper for me. And again, the title is The 21st Century Photographs from the Image Collection. And we have, we are so fortunate, we have uh, one of the editor-in-chief representatives from Nat Geo. Her name is Susan Goldberg, and she is on the line. I understand she and the publicist, and they are on the line. So let's bring on editor-in-chief from National Geographic, Nat Geo for short, of course, Susan Goldberg to tell us more about their latest huge book that I just love. I'm kind of hugging on the book right now. So let's bring uh, Susan on right now to tell us more about the making of this fantastic new book. And you're on with Janice. Hello, Janice. Hi, Susan. Such a pleasure to chat with you this afternoon. I guess this afternoon for sure your time. And, um, well, we have, at least you have, you and your staff, you have this wonderful new book. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love National Geographic? Uh, the new book, The 21st Century, Photographs from, from the Image Collection. And so this is basically a beautiful book that has some of the best photographs from the 21st century, according to you and your editors that you guys have selected and compiled them all for National Geographic. What a wonderful but obviously huge job that was. You, you know, with cell phones and drones and selfies and regular pictures, how, how many pictures did you guys have to sort through? Well, the National Geographic image collection is huge, right? It's one of the largest collections of images in the world anywhere, and it has tens and tens of millions of images. Just this year alone, about two million more images will be added to our image collection. And these days, most of those images are digital images, but when you actually go into the image collection, it's here in our building in Washington, D.C., you can see lots of slides and and photographic prints from, you know, from decades and decades ago. So in this case, though, we were just looking at the first 21 years of the 21st century. So it did kind of narrow that field. But as you, you know, as you know, there were still millions of images to sort through. It was hard. Oh, I can only imagine because there's so many great ones, especially from around the world. So how, how, I mean, what kind of categories, I understand that uh, you, you all put the images in chronologically, chronological, I should say, orders as opposed to themes. So what kinds of themes uh, are we talking about for this book? Well, of course, at National Geographic, we take pictures of really life on Earth, right, as it, as it unfolds. So we have all kinds of 
documented important incidents, such as we have pictures from 9-11, from, um, right, one of the first biggest events of the 21st century that is still affecting our, our world today. Uh, so we have pictures from 9-11, from but we've got, you know, then pictures from as recently as the, as the insurrection, right, of January in 2021. And we organized the book chronologically. So when you, you sit back and you have this book in front of you, and it is a big book, right? It weighs about five pounds, I would say. It's about okay. 430 pages. You're paging through it, and you're going on this journey through time. Pretty much, you know, anybody over the age of 30 is going to remember a lot of the events depicted in the book. And I really like it that it's chronological because it sort of takes you um, through this shared history told through photography. And we have all been on this journey together. Oh, absolutely. We definitely have. Uh, I'm sure there are many, many photographs that we'll see um, that we've forgotten, not because it's not important or didn't make an impact, but because there's so much news always going on. But I'm, that's what I'm looking forward to, to seeing photos of places that I've forgotten about or maybe incidents that I've forgotten. That's always kind of fun for me, at least, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. And, and I hope that people see things that they never knew about in the first place, right? And <laughs> they'll go, wow, that was cool. Let me find out more. And so that's one of the things that I think a National Geographic uh, photograph does, that it should stop you in your tracks. It should make you curious about what happened, and it should make you want to find out more. And to Further speak of, you know, what makes a good photograph. Well, in your opinion, in your professional opinion, I should say, what makes a photograph iconic, especially that it can make the cut for National Geographic? Well, it is hard. And, I mean, sometimes it's iconic because of the event. So we, we talked a moment ago about 9-11, right? Some of those pictures from that day have become iconic because the event was so huge. But photographs can also become iconic just because they, they do make you curious or, or make you want to celebrate or make you want to cry sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. it, it touches your heart. It, it moves you in, in a way. So images are, are so important because people approach them differently. When two people see the same picture, they might think very different things. Um, you know, we've got a picture uh, in here that I particularly like, uh, and I like it so much it's actually on my wall in my office, but it's taken in 2019, and it's of a female U.S. Marine Corporal, and her name is Gabrielle Green, and she is getting ready for deployment, and she's marching up this steep ramp, and that wouldn't be that exceptional, except she's got a 200-pound man over her shoulder. Right, and she is determined, and she is carrying this guy up this ramp, and there's no way she's going to drop him. And she's got a tattoo on her thigh that you can read, and it says, the fire inside me burns brighter than the fire around me. Oh, and goodness. I just love this picture. It's inspirational. It, it's like a can-do picture for women. It, I look at it, and it kind of puts things in, helps me keep things in perspective and reminds me of how powerful women really are and how much progress we've made. So I approach that picture and see that. You know, somebody else might approach it and see something else. Absolutely. I can't wait to see that one. Now that I know that that's one of your personal favorites, I'm really going to key in on that one. 
Well, okay. With the, of course, technology being what it is, uh, now we are at the mercy of our cell phones now. So are there any uh, pictures that you guys use that were taken from cell phones? You know, I think that there were because the, the fact is, is our photographers use all kinds of camera equipment, right? They use drones. They use some of the best cameras in the world. They use cameras that we specifically created for them to be able to take the best underwater photography or wildlife photography when you can't get too close to the animals. But they also use cell phones because cell phones are a way of kind of blending into that crowd, right, and not standing out as a photographer with a giant long lens. And so they use cell phones all the time to take pictures. One of the things that I always think is kind of funny is that now that everybody in the world takes pictures every day with their phones, right, people understand how hard it is to get a good picture, um, how difficult it is to be a great photographer. And I believe it makes people appreciate our photography even more. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, working in media, I have friends who – said, oh, I understand, you know, I, I really understand what you do a lot better because they're, you know, doing the same thing, using their phones, trying to get pictures and such, video, all of that, all of that stuff. Well, lastly here, uh, I know the whole book is about uh, images from the 21st century so far as we roll along here, but when did you, in your staff, when did you first start on collecting this for this book? How long did it take to assemble all of this? Well, you know, we started talking about this somewhere in the middle of 2020. Now, 2020 was a year that none of us will ever forget. Never. Um, you know, go, the pandemic, the racial reckoning, it was really, really a, a very difficult year. And um, we started thinking initially, wow, maybe we should just do a book of 2020 because it was such a memorable year. But then we decided to step back a little more, elevate, if you will, and to really look at everything that led us up to this point and begin it, you know, as you probably remember, um, Y2K, right? Well, we all thought that there was going to be a giant <laughs> meltdown. But right after, right after that, when 99 becomes 2000, so our book begins then and right up to this moment, because I think you get a more well-rounded picture of the times that we're living in and why we're living in these times when we look at the last 21 years and not just the past you know, year or two years. Well, the book, again, is The 21st Century, Photographs from the Image Collection. Uh, we, I think this is the kind of book not only good for the holiday season, but any time, any time, especially if you love photographs and books and coffee table style books. This is this is the granddaddy, grandma of them all, especially coming from National Geographic. So Susan Goldberg, thank you so much for giving us some backstory about the making of this wonderful book. I really appreciate your chat. Oh, thank you, Janice. Thank you for having me on your show. Okay, take care then, and uh, hopefully we'll see you the next time the next book comes out. I hope so. Thank okay, bye-bye. Okay, we are back here with more of Film Festival Radio Show, and we will continue on rolling right along with our guest of authors here. And so right now, uh, we're uh, waiting for our next guest. His name is Daniel DeVisay. I do 
think I am pronouncing his last name correctly. It looks very French to me, D-E-V-I-S-E, apostrophe over the E. I do believe it's Daniel Divisay. Uh The title of the book is The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. Yes, the late, great B.B. King. What a legend. What a legend. I understand that he lived right here in Las Vegas for many, many years. He is perhaps the most important artist in the genre of blues music of all time as far as longevity and and just i mean just an icon throughout the world uh his career just spanned it just seemed like it it never ended it, his career and his his popularity and his music lasted all the way up until the day he passed away and continues to be as popular as ever Fifteenth, according to the author here, research, B.B. King did approximately 15,000 concerts in 90 countries for over close to, I'll say close to 60 years, for almost 60 years. Let's look at those numbers again. Almost 15,000 concerts in 90 countries for almost 60 years. I mean, those are some numbers. But to my surprise, and probably you too, um, this musical legend did not really have a full-length authoritative biography released. No, I mean, there, there were a lot of unauthorized books, but a real authoritative biography until now. And that brings me back to our guest. Again, the short title is King of the Blues. And uh, I think our guest, Daniel DeVisay, has done an amazing job on research. He talked to so many family members and former band members and childhood friends, just people who really knew uh, Mr. King well. And so... um Again, this is one of those books, holiday season, time to get those gifts. This is a good one for the music lover out there, especially if they love music, uh, blues music. So uh, green lights blinking, let's bring on our guest, Daniel DeVesay. Again, the book is The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. So let's bring Daniel on right now and just delve more into this very, uh, very well done book. So let's bring him on right now. Part of the interruption, we're now connected with the line of Janice Malone. We do have Daniel DeVizet standing by. I'm ready. Me too, thank you. Okay. Go ahead, Janice, that's Daniel. Hi, Daniel. So nice to chat with you. Uh, likewise, likewise been reading this book you've got a seems like a blockbuster here on your hand the book is uh about the life story of the late great blues legend bb king the title is king of the blues the rise and reign of bb king i mean other than the music daniel what was it about this story that attracted you to want to devote and spend so much time writing and researching it well, it, it is in the end all about the music. I felt that B.B. King, actually as famous as he is and as well-known as he is, and even though everybody kind of acknowledges he's the great blues guy, I didn't think he was getting all the credit that he deserved. Um, I believe, and what my book argues, is that B.B. King 
created a, a unique signature guitar sound, and, and that sound is the guitar played so that it sounds like a human voice. And it seems obvious now, yeah, obviously everybody plays that way, but everybody didn't used to play that way. B.B. Um, mm-hmm. King was the first, I would argue, who played that way. He learned to play that way in 1949, 1950. That was kind of his genius. He sort of humanized his guitar and gave her a name, Lucille, and then he would sing, and then he would throw it over to Lucille, and Lucille would sing. And it took a while, but sometime between 1950 and the 60s, a whole generation of guitarists learned to play that way. Uh, First, the great black blues guitarists like Albert King and Buddy Guy, and then later, a whole army of white British guitarists, and then still later, an even larger army of American guitarists, pop guitarists, and blues guitarists, and that's all B.B. King, and that's why he matters so much, in my opinion. That's really ultimately why I wrote the book. Now, as you mentioned, he has influenced this generation, previous generation, just so many wonderfully uh, talented guitarists, but who influenced and inspired him when he was starting out as a guitarist? Well, he's from the Delta, but I would argue that his, and he himself said, his greatest influences were not the Delta Blues giants like Robert Johnson. Um, Oddly enough, Robert Johnson's music would not have been something Mr. King would have heard when he was a young man. Um, the music, that music was lost until it was rediscovered in the 1960s. And Mr. Robert Johnson didn't really sell many records because he recorded during the uh, Depression. So uh, Mr. King's big influences were rhythm and blues uh, guitarists, jazz guitarists, uh, artists with big bands and you know arrangements, charts, horns. Uh, one of the earliest would be Lonnie Johnson. Uh, who was a brilliant guitarist in the in the jazz and blues idioms, who was maybe the first prominent guitarist to, to solo on a single string. Bear in mind, there was no amplifiers in the 20s, so that was not the obvious thing to do with the guitar. And then in the 30s, Charlie Christian, the first great electric guitarist in jazz, is a huge influence on Mr. King. And then in the post-war 40s, T-Bone Walker, who was a rare example of a guitarist fronting a big rhythm and blues combo was maybe the biggest influence of all on B.B. King. Um, And what was so unusual about T-Bone was simply that he was playing an electric guitar at the front of a band. Guitarists and guitars were not front and center at all in rhythm and blues or in pop music in the 40s and into the 50s. The, The instrument was almost not heard. So just the fact that Mr. King gravitated to the electric guitar, that almost set him apart from everybody else. Uh, were there any surprises uh, as you did your research, delved more and more into his life story? I understand that you talked to so many uh, surviving members of his family and inner circle, band members and such. Any any surprises? We don't want to, of course, give away too much from the book, but that's something to share with us. <laughs> well, I've got to give a shout-out to Ms. Laverne Tony, who ran B.B. King's entire Las Vegas operation for decades, literally decades. I had the honor of speaking to her and interviewing her multiple times, and she's in the book, and she's one of the voices in the book, and I hope she could listen to this broadcast. But um, the biggest surprise would have to be, again, getting to how the guitar was kind of ignored back in those days. Um, For the first decade or more that Mr. King was making music and recording music, he was really celebrated mostly as a singer. So if you if you were to find a clipping of of BB about BB King from the 50s, it would say here's BB King, the greatest blues singer. It would barely mention his guitar, 
In fact, even as late as uh, the, the famous Regal LP, which was recorded in Chicago in, I think, 64, Mr. King has been introduced as, ladies and gentlemen, the world's greatest blues singer, B.B. King. And what then happens is, you know, it's largely because of B.B. King that the guitar becomes so popular and guitarists become so popular. And you start having these guitar heroes, you know, maybe Chuck Berry and then all these British people and then Jimi Hendrix, the biggest guitar hero of them all, very much influenced by B.B. King. And then, you know, all these people start listening more to B.B. King's guitar because guitar is where the action is. And so by the, by the second half of the 60s, for, for certainly more and more people regarded him as, yes, an amazing singer, but also the great guitarist of blues. One thing that kind of surprised me uh, about your book is that it seems that B.B. is, you know, he's a world-renowned superstar, but he didn't seem to have a real hardcore love interest, even though he had been married a couple of times. Can you elaborate on that a minute? Oh, yeah. That that bedeviled me during the time I was reporting the book. Um, I knew that Mr. King's second and last marriage to Sue, wonderful Sue, I interviewed her many, many times, um, ended in 1966. And that was pretty early on. I mean, that's 50-some years ago. I knew, and here I'll quote Laura Walker, a wonderful, wonderful source who was a huge central friend to Mr. King, told me, B.B. had, you know, after that had many women, hundreds of women, I'm quoting her, but, but there was no one woman. And so I came to understand that after that second marriage ended, I would argue that Sue, B.B.'s second wife, was the love of his life and remained so all the way to the end. They, they remained very close. They realized that the marriage couldn't work because B.B. King was on the road all the time. But they stayed as close as could be, and she was always central in his thoughts. He would always invite her to see him perform when he had a really big deal gig, like going to Ireland or something. And he he dated lots of people and had lots of, I think, wonderful you know romances, but nothing ever again that came to the center of his soul. And that's because I think Sue was was the love of his life, and that's sort of central to understanding the man, I think. Now, uh, I understand that both of his marriages, he did not have any biological children with those wives, but yet he he does have children, right? Uh, Yes, that's right. Uh, He had 15 children, and he celebrated them for his whole life. And I would argue that because there had been terrible loss in Mr. King's early life, he lost his baby brother when he was, I believe, five years old. His mother died when he was 10, leaving him motherless. Uh, he was separated from his father, who started a different family. And then his grandmother, who was caring for him, died when he was, I think, 14. So he, he must have felt like he was alone in the world. And as his biographer, I would assert that he spent his entire adult life trying to build up a family. And that's what he did. Um, now, the people closest to Mr. King, every one of them told me that they believe that uh, m- that most of the children are probably not biological children. Maybe none of them are. I don't know for sure. Um, and the reason for this would be that a fertility doctor told Mr. King in, back in the 50s that he couldn't, couldn't have children. But as the biographer, uh, what matters to me, what's really interesting is how Mr. King loved, loved this family. He would gather them together whenever he could and celebrate them. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing. He wanted to have his family, and he celebrated the family every opportunity he got. It's a fascinating book. And last question here. Where is his beloved Lucille, his beloved guitar? Where is Lucille today? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, there was a whole bunch of Lucille's. Uh, I, I wish I could say there was only one. Um, and I've lost count. But j- since his death, I've been aware of multiple examples of guitars that he signed, you know, as Lucille that have sold at auction for six-figure sums. So if you have one of them, uh, <laughs> you're set, you know. Um, but there were many, many Lucille's. And you Gibson partisans out there will be surprised to hear that in the 50s, he played any which kind of guitar, uh, Fenders, you know, Gretches, everything, and he, they would all be called Lucille. Ah, uh, okay. So that's good to know. There are many, I would love to know <laughs> the, the last Lucille that he performed and played, be, you know, before his death. That, that would be one of my favorite Lucilles, but that's just me. Oh, you'd have to ask Ms. Ms. Laverne Tony or, or Myron Johnson, who I also interviewed, they would know where, <laughs> where that guitar is. I don't. The final Lucille. Well, again, Daniel, this is a wonderful book. And for people who are especially uh, fans of Mr. King's and, and just the blues music itself, get the book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King. I'm going to see if I'm going to get your last name correctly, Daniel. Daniel DeVisay? Am I close? That no? is perfect. Yeah, ah! DeVisay. Okay, DeVisay. I was trying to practice while I was on hold there, but I got it. And uh, congratulations on the book, and hopefully, I'm sure we will. Uh, do you know your next um, topic of uh, person, of personality? Yeah. Who's that? Uh, my next book is going to be about the Blues Brothers, the movie. Oh, my goodness. Yes. We will be talking again then, for sure. Absolutely. I hope so. Love that movie. I'd love to. Love that movie. Okay, thank you again for the chat, and we'll see you at the bookstores. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we are back with more of the show. Uh, Don't forget, once again, to roll those clocks back one hour starting midnight tonight. (sighs) Yeah, it's going to be dark early. That's all I can think about. It's going to be dark early, and it's just breaking my heart. Uh, Boo-hoo. Okay, I'll get over it. I will get over it. I'll be fine by Wednesday or so. I go through this every year. But anyway, uh, something that will make you happy, bring smiles to your face, is our next guest and her film festival. She and her crew and all the wonderful and talented filmmakers. We're talking about the upcoming San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. And it is what I really... One of the many things that I like about this film festival is that it is very large and it is one of the longest, one of those film festivals that's been going on for over two decades. Let me tell you more about it. Once again, it's the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival and it is the world's first and longest running transgender film festival. They have been going strong for 20 Four years. Some of you guys out there weren't even born when this festival started, but it's still going on. It's stronger and bigger and badder and bolder than ever. And it starts for this year, November 11th through the 14th. It will be, uh, the focus is on film shorts. And I love film shorts. If for those who really know me, you know, I have so much respect for filmmakers who can make film shorts because it takes a very unique talent to be able to express your creativity in a film short. You know, some film shorts are as short as two minutes, but you've got some filmmakers that can get the job done. But anyway, this festival, again, um, 
The San Francisco Transgender Film Festival will start November 11th through the 14th, now in its 24th year. It will be held entirely online. And another unique uh, aspect of this festival, it is a pay-what-you-wish model in order to watch all of these fantastic films. Yeah, pay-what-you-wish. I like that. You know, I'm always putting a chokehold on a dollar. So this is this is very unique. And so um, we're going to bring on our featured guest, Shauna Virago. And Shauna is the artistic director for the festival. Now, you can go sign up, register, uh, pay what you wish is the model. And we're going to ask Shauna more about that. Go to their website. It's S-T... No, wrong. Let me start over. It's sftff.org. And all of that is, of course, uh, short for San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. Again, sftff.org. And there you will find all of the information about uh, just everything, the films that will be showcased. Uh, they have seven different categories of film shorts. And these films uh, range from uh, very serious, dramatic, to just fun, creative, artistic, everything in between, seven different categories. There are probably plenty of films that will just just you'll just love and they're all very very entertaining and again it starts on november 11th through the 14th all online so you can be anywhere in the world you can see it so again let's bring on the artistic director shauna virago i understand that she is on board uh waiting for us to click the button and bring her online with us so let's bring her on board right now we have her yeah okay Francisco Transgender Film Festival. Okay. Hi, Shauna. So nice to chat with you this morning. Yeah, nice to chat with you. <laughs> okay. Well, what I'm going to do is uh, we will start. Let me get my notes here. Okay. And then we'll start uh, recording. So I'm going to make sure I pronounce your last name correctly. It's Barago. That's it? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay, well, I'm going to count down four, three, two, one, and we'll start recording. Okay, great. Okay, so here we go. Four, three, two, one. Well, everybody, we have our next guest here on Film Festival Radio Show. Uh, I will tell you that the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival, it is the world's first and longest-running transgender film festival, and their festival is coming up very soon, November 11th through the 14th. This is their 24th year. That's a long time, of course. And we have the festival's artistic director, Shauna Virago, on board. Good afternoon, Shauna. Thank you for being our guest. Oh, thank you, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it seems like you have a, you know, all of you and your staff, all of you have a lot of film festival to get going here in just about another two weeks or so. So first of all, tell us a little bit more about the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. And uh, will this be virtual or will it be a mixture of online and in person? Um. So this year's festival will be completely online, and um, it was online last year as well. And um, 
we wanted to make the, the festival online again um, just because of the continuing impact and uncertainty around COVID. And so many people in our communities have been impacted by COVID, by perhaps lack of um, access to health care and economic considerations. So we wanted to make it really easy for people to um, watch our movies. So we're going to do it online this year. Okay. Online, I know all of us who are accustomed to going to film festivals love, of course, being on site. But there is kind of an upside to virtual because, you know, everybody can attend your comforts of your own home, your patio, or wherever. So that part is, is good. But still, it's nothing like being in person, you know. Yeah, completely. And I just want to say real fast, I'm so glad we're not doing this on Zoom because your audience would see me uh, spill coffee down my uh, my shirt, my <laughs> my professional shirt that I usually wear, like most of us, um, when we, we have interviews now. Uh, so a little embarrassed, but um, yeah, there's nothing like meeting in person and there's a magic. I think, um, especially for us, the Transgender Film Festival, we we feel like we're gathering in our communities. We're kind of creating a safe space for all of us to watch uh, the movies made by our communities. And so there's a way it resonates in a special way. But I agree with you. There's something um, also nice about the online experience because it, it allows more people to watch movies. Yeah. And so that's an upside. That's very true. Well, now, um, the festival has a very unique model that I really like. It's called the Pay What You Wish. Very unique, very helpful, especially in economic times like this. So explain what the Pay What You Wish model is all about. Sure. Um, Well, I think our festival um, really is, from the time we started, we, I think we might be a little bit more um, maybe politicized or we're really committed to anti-oppression approaches to art and politics and community. So um, we're, I think, constantly trying to figure out, like, ways to bring new dimensions of solidarity and access to our, our communities. And um, so we decided to have our tickets start at zero dollars and then pay what you can, just again, because um, we we know a lot of people are really up against it right now and suffering and trying to save money for all kinds of reasons. And we just wanted to make it really easy for people to watch movies. And that's why we're also uh, having all of our movies closed captioned. We did that last year. We're doing it again this year. All seven programs are closed captioned for um, deaf and hard of hearing audiences. So I think this is just back to us trying to always get better at how we can um, connect with more people. Now, the um, pay what you wish model is uh, how long has that been in, in place or is this the first year you're trying this we always we've always had it pay what you can okay. and we usually our tickets start we keep them pretty low 
like ten dollars for a program or um you know forty dollars forty five dollars for an all festival pass so I think we we've always tried to keep our our ticket prices at, in um a range that most people can afford. So it's always been there, but this year we're really making it explicit that tickets start at zero. If, if that's what people are comfortable with, that's great. Or if they want to contribute $5, that's great too. So it's always been there, but I think uh, we're making it really obvious this year. Okay. Now, again, the festival is the San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. It takes place November 11th through the 14th, and it's all virtual. So um, tell everybody the website of where people can register and get going. Sure. So um, our website is SFTFS. Those are our initial San Francisco Transgender Film Festival, SFTFS.org for all program information and also um, ticket information. Okay. And also people can look at our programs and, and look at all the movies that we have and, and pick a program that speaks to them. Now, about how many films will be shown during the festival? We have seven programs, and as I believe we have, we have 42 films that we'll be screening. And um, we also decided to make all of the films shorts, so there's 30 minutes or less because we wanted to um, – there's more film transgender film festivals out there, and some of them have, um, like, a, a bigger capacity to screen more movies than us, so they're screening a lot of feature films. But we also try to make our films um, – we try to make our movies for filmmakers. Also, we want to screen as many movies as we can from our communities um, because, again, a lot of our people in our communities don't have budgets to make, you know, glossy-looking films, so we prioritize a lot of um, do-it-yourself films and um, people who maybe are a little more radical in their vision, a lot of experimental cinema. So we have um, 42 films, and they're all shorts. That's a lot of films. Yeah, that's good, though, because just think, you know, you can just switch around to uh, whatever, you know, what do you say? You have seven uh, models there, so you can just switch to whatever and whatever topic that you're interested in, go back and forth. I love festivals that have lots of films in them because people have such interesting taste about films. What do you think is awesome? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, it's it's so amazing to see people's different vision mm-hmm. and what's important to them. And um, you know, and I I mean, I was looking at all of your great work, and you you're doing things on Mike Nichols, and you're doing programs about Cam, and you know, we need we need that level of filmmaking, but we also need to make sure we don't forget about underrepresented voices and. Um, people who are really taking a chance and doing really kind of quirky and innovative things. And I think that's always been what we have strived to screen. And that's one of the things that really uh, caused me to want to promote your film festival because, you know, if 
for people who don't know this, it is very, very hard to get into film festivals like Cannes and Sundance and Toronto. I mean, Austin, these are very big, big festivals. And, it's, and, it, and naturally so, it's, it's so many filmmakers out there who want to be in them. And so I like to always try to include everyone as possible. And so your festival obviously has a lot of talented uh, filmmakers and actors and actresses. Uh, and so why not let everybody showcase their work? And so that's one of the reasons why we have this show. So that brings me to this question. Um, is the festival for transgender filmmakers only, or can anyone who's a filmmaker submit? Well, our festival... Um we prioritize films made by transgender and gender non-conforming filmmakers, but we screen films by cisgender directors, non, that is non-transgender directors, but they have to display a high degree of sensitivity to trans and gender non-conforming communities and, and I would say subject matter. And just like our audiences, most of the people are transgender or gender non-conforming people, but all genders can enjoy the festival. And um, even though our aesthetic might be a little more edgy than some other festivals, we also want lots of people to view the films of these talented filmmakers. So we're open to it. We're, you know, we're, uh, we don't need any more uh, border policing, whether it's gender or borders themselves in our country right now. We need to open our hearts. We need to make space for each other. So I, I hope we're doing that. I think you are. I mean, you've been around 24 years. That says a lot. That does. So about how many film submissions did you uh, receive for this year's festival? Um, we received about 125 submissions. Okay. A good number. Yeah, and so, yeah, and um, we're very, you know. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a good amount, and I think out of that, forty-two films have been selected, and um, we have a great screening committee as well, and um, I think we've put together a really strong program. Now, when uh, does the festival start taking new submissions for next year? We will probably start in the spring. Normally, um, I think we start around April. Okay. You know, we, we are a very small team. Basically, we have um, three people who do the majority of the work plus screening committee. And we have, um, we get, we have a small advisory board. So we're also, I think, that helped us last year with when COVID was happening and we we're all so uncertain about the future. I think because we have a small team and our, our overhead is low compared to a lot of festivals, we were able to still put on a festival last year. Um, and I think that has, that's a strength for us, having a small team. Mm -hmm. Give us some um, details. I know it's 42 films, but are there at least one or two or three films that will be very much highlighted that you can talk to us about? Can give us a preview. Yes. So um, 
one of the films that we really love. It's called Sweetness. It's directed by N.D. Johnson, and it's a thriller, and it's about a Tara, a black trans woman, and she um, meets her, uh, her boyfriend, seems almost like too good to be true, and then she finds herself in, like, in so many thrillers, um, maybe trying to get away from him. Maybe he's not what he seems. So it's a short, but it's so well done, and you really feel it, like the tension you would feel in any thriller. And um, so we love that movie. There's a film called Nimzo, directed by Adelina Anthony, and it stars one of our, uh, kind of our, favorite actors in uh, trans communities, Sars Vilo, and it um, tells a story of a, a trans and of color. He's dealing with things from his past while trying to uh, fill his testosterone supply during the pandemic, and it deals with some, you know, heavy themes, but mm-hmm. existence and vulnerability and a, and a struggle to forgive, and it's really well done. It's uh, it's a triptych of three short stories that make up an entire story. So those are two of the movies. And also um, there's a film called Sorry Out of Gender, directed by Fox and Owl. And uh, it comes from, they're from the uh, United Kingdom, and they're part of a, a film collective called My Generation. And it's a music uh, video. It packs a lot of ideas and um, exploring how a non-binary person navigates a gendered world. So, and again, you know, these movies are made by trans and non-binary people, but it speaks to the humanity in all of us. And so these films really, anyone can relate to these movies. Yeah, they sound very entertaining. Excuse me sound very entertaining for anyone, uh, especially the one about the thriller. Oh, my God, it kind of sounds like an Alfred Hitchcock type movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, definitely. Well, finally, Shauna, uh, to wrap this up, uh, can you give us some information about other events that will be taking place, especially opening night? I know most film festivals have big, big stuff, opening night and closing night. Well, we are, we are a very much a kind of... Um, say no frills festival we normally in person we have lots of q and a's after every screening this year we are excited that we're going to have uh, a q and a after the opening night screening we thought we wanted to, to screen as many films as we can in the program so rather than shortening how many films we screen to have q and a's we have more films than we intended to put out there but the opening night screening um, that will take place November 11th, we will have a, a great Q&A after that screening. Okay. Okay. Wonderful. Well, before we close it out, uh, give us the website one more time and tell us about the pay-as-you-wish model so people can just flood the gates with that. <laughs> Thank you. Um <laughs> So our film festival website is S like Sam, F like Frank, T like Tom, F like Frank, F like Frank.org, sftss.org. 
Um, that's where people can look at all of our programs and um, also look at how to get tickets. And all of our tickets start at zero dollars, and they are a pay-what-you-can sliding scale. And all of our films are closed captioned for deaf and hard of hearing audio. Do here. So anyway, Shauna, again, thank you so much, and uh, I'll be tuning in November 11th through the 14th. Again, the San Francisco 24th Annual San Francisco Transgender Film Festival. And, uh, hey, let's all support this festival and have a lot of fun while we're watching some great films. I think so. Yeah, thank you. Okay, well, you have a great rest of the weekend, Shauna. You too, Janice. Thank you so much. Okay, take care then. I'll see you at the festival. Yay. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, thank you so much, Shauna. Uh, I'll see you and the rest of everybody at the film festival when it starts on November 11th through the 14th. So we are so out of time. Want to thank all three of our guests for being on this edition of the show. And of course, thank you guys for listening as always. We're out of time. We are so out of time. Don't forget, roll those clocks back one hour later on midnight. That includes me, too. But we'll see you guys next Saturday on another edition of Film Festival Radio Show. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another edition of Film Festival Radio with your host, Janice Malone. Be sure to download this and other episodes at filmfestivalradio.com. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.